Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eilee and Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer-songwriter and freedom fighter Tom Morello with our signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Tom has a photo book out called Whatever It Takes that tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing, and I urge you to pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word, TomMorelloBook.com. We broadcast from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, unceded lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, and the Odawa, and a dozen more indigenous nations. We acknowledge them and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in the shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These complex questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is On the Birthday of the World by Marge Piercy. On the birthday of the world, I begin to contemplate what I have done and left undone. But this year, not so much rebuilding of my perennially damaged psyche, shoring up eroding friendships, digging out stumps of old resentments that refuse to rot on their own. No, this year I want to call myself to task for what I have done and not done for peace. How much have I dared in opposition? How much have I put on the line for freedom? for mine and others. As these freedoms are paired, sliced and diced, where have I spoken out? Who have I tried to move? In this holy season, I stand self-convicted of sloth in a time when lies choke the mind and rhetoric bends reason to slithering, choking pythons. Here I stand before the gates opening, the fire dazzling my eyes, and as I approach what judges me, I judge myself. Give me weapons of minute destruction. Let my words turn into sparks. That was Marge Piercy on the birthday of the world. Our second regular feature is a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. What have I done for peace this year? What have I not done for peace? And what will I do in 2023 to make the world a more just and peaceful place for all the coming generations? Okay, start writing. I'll be right here when you get back. 
email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Lighty, I just read a terrific novella by Danielle Evans called The Office of Historical Corrections. I love that title, The Office of Historical Corrections. When one character says the beauty of motherhood is that all the choices are wrong, she's asked by a friend if being a parent is terrifying, and she responds, yes, it's like every day since Octavia was born. I've had to choose between trying to do the best I can for her and trying to do the best I can for the world that she has to live in. That seems to me part of the conversation you and I have been having about John Brown and about parenting in general and what do we owe our children and what do we owe the world that our children are growing up. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of like the most sophisticated parents have to deal with is how do you balance that and how do you not give up your children but try your best to feel okay about what you've done for the world that they're going to grow up in. We were just with your 16-month-old cousin, right? And his parents worked very hard to give him a beautiful life, right? Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, is it... It's complicated how you balance those things. I think that after my uncle Chesa had the childhood that he did, it becomes even more complicated for him to strike that balance because he definitely doesn't want his son to have that same childhood. That's probably right. So he wants to be present for his son and give his son everything he can without risking too much, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm. he knows better than almost anyone what it's like to grow up with a parent who isn't there because in some way they chose their political pursuits and not him, really. On the other hand, Chesa works very hard to, you know, be a public person making a difference in the world. And I think, I think Chesa himself would say it's kind of a tough balance on the one hand wanting to be there all the time for his son on the other hand really wanting to make an impact on the world yeah but i mean he does it in a different way than his parents did well he doesn't he's not doing anything illegal as far as we know (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's definitely a big part of it but also he kind of did choose his family his partner and his son over his political life in the end yeah it's and of course it's not the end yet but I know what you're saying. I mean, it's a complicated question, and I think we'll return to it again and again. But let's continue it later and head over to 57th Street Books for our conversation with Theodore Richards, a teacher, a parent of three daughters, and the author of Reimagining the Classroom, Creating New Learning Spaces, and Connecting with the World. First of all, Todd, I really like that introduction because Todd just turned on Alexa or, or Siri at somebody at my house and asked, who is Bill Ayers? And it said, Bill Ayers is an American terrorist. That was, that's what Siri said. I'm like, come over to my house and re-record that. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I do, I, I, I'm really feeling overwhelmed the last few weeks that we're kind of being able to be back in person to some degree, a limited degree, but it really matters to me. And one of the things that I think is hugely important, and the reason I wanted to say a word about the store, is that in a period when the public space is disappearing, when the public square is in eclipse, a place like this and like Seminary Co-op are just treasures. 
And we have to see them for what they are. And I think we could feel it the last two years when they disappeared, what we lost. And as we watch universities become corporate, libraries disappearing, you know, the, the, the kind of censorship all over, not just Florida and Texas, but everywhere. Um, I think we should really honor a place like this. And what that means to me is that everybody who's here and everybody who can hear this um, should support this institution, this valuable public space. And that means buy a book. So I'm shilling for Theodore Richards' book, which I think is an important book. But if you want to buy one of those and then one for a friend, that would be great. And then you can buy any other book and he'll sign it, right? Any book. Any yeah. book. <laughs> so buy Moby Dick and Theodore will sign it. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm partly joking, but I'm partly being quite serious that if we lose the public space, we lose a basic tenet of democracy. And so support this store, support this institution, and uh, get a book, and we'll talk for the next hour. Our plan is that Theodore is going to talk a bit about the book, he's going to talk a bit yeah, about, a bit. Uh, read a little bit from the book, and then he and I will be in conversation for a few minutes, but very quickly we want to open it up to you. So as he speaks, as he orients us toward his work, um, be thinking about what you'd like to ask or, or challenge or whatever. Um, so, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I, I think that, uh, and I'll read a little bit from the book. I'm going to read something from the introduction, just sort of like a, about what the kind of uh, way the book came into being for me. Um, but I think that, that what's really important is that we have a good conversation. And one of the sort of fundamental ideas that I'm trying to convey is that the real, the real learning happens, whether it's in reading a book or in a classroom or in any kind of learning process, it happens in the relationship. That's the, that space in between rather than in, in sort of a concrete thing that I can give to you. So I'll read a little bit, but I think like the thing that I'm hoping to get from the, the conversation is really just that, that relationship and that in-between space between among us all. Um, so this is like a, a, a portion of the introduction of the book, which kind of talks about where it came from, I guess. A child sits alone, staring at a screen. This is the enduring image of the COVID pandemic, the sad and lonely child learning remotely. It is the child who encapsulates the moment, the child who forces a reckoning with the world we've made, the future we've mortgaged, the cost of our hubris. Is perhaps then the only logical consequence of this system that our children should end up this way, alone, staring at a screen, this loneliness, a manifestation of a deeper cosmic loneliness, the spirit of rugged independence made flesh. Its cost is apparent to any parent. Every gift of childhood, joy, exploration, play, wonder, sacrifice at the altar of the system. And so, it's also odd that a response to this crisis is a doubling down, a deeper investment in the very system that birthed it. But there's a gift in this crisis, even if some refuse to see it. The pandemic has shown us so many things that we've been doing are perhaps worth rethinking. Why do we prepare our children for work that will surely no longer exist, for a world that will be so radically changed? It has brought our children's schools into our homes, and we have been able to see just how impoverished their educational lives often are. Obviously, remote learning is an idea, but we can also see that our school systems, like many systems, were already problematic long before the pandemic hit. Our children's lives were dominated by a narrow breadth of easily tested skills and information. Our children were already spending their days on screens, already in the midst of a mental health crisis. One of my children, at the time she was a seventh grader, the other two younger children were homeschooled, has been in a remote learning program. So I can attest that it's neither the competence nor the effort of her teachers at issue. The problem is that we've forgotten the key to education, to parenting and childhood, to humanity. We've forgotten that all learning, all growth, all life 
is relational. The crisis is making it apparent that some of the basic assumptions we've made about the world are worth rethinking. Foremost among them is our sense of independence and isolation from each other, from the world as a whole. Our schools are rooted in the values of independence and isolation and the consequences that we are increasingly lonely. The crises we face, from the pandemic to climate change to the struggle for racial justice, all call upon us to think holistically and interdependently. A classroom or a school isn't merely a neutral space in which to perform the act of educating. The ways it is shaped, structured, and organized are rich with meaning. And most of that meaning is unarticulated, often unconscious. If the purpose of education is to create a better world, it is this unconscious symbolism of the school and classroom that provides us with a vision for the world our youth might create. In other words, the classroom is a microcosm, a metaphor for the world. I'd like to not only challenge this understanding of the classroom and the school, but also seek to think more expansively of what constitutes those spaces. The world can be a classroom, and everything can be understood as education. It's commonly said, for example, that when a society invests in prisons or the military and divests in schools, it is taking money from education in favor of those other institutions. And indeed, such decisions are a reflection of society's values. But another way to frame such a decision is to say that whenever we, whatever we invest in is, as a reflection of values, an investment in some form of education. To invest in a prison and to incarcerate greater numbers of people is to choose that space as a classroom, a space in which many will learn their place in the world. To invest in the military is to choose the values and worldview of the soldier. We have lost our sense of place in the world. The stories we've been given have taught us that we are alone and ultimately lonely. We live in a time of unprecedented crises, an age that requires unprecedented changes, not merely in our systems, but in the very values, ideas, and narratives that give us our sense of who we are and our place in the cosmos. But most of us are too deeply embedded in our worldview to even be able to grasp the urgency and immensity of the changes required. We often simply cannot imagine what doesn't fit in our story. But there is hope, for there are people among us who aren't as invested in the worldview that has led us into so much trouble, our children. Our work as parents and educators is to create the spaces and facilitate the processes that can allow them to teach us. Our children, unlike us, will not hesitate to claim their new place in the world if we can only offer them the space to do it and the humility to listen. Beautiful. Beautiful. How many times have you and I had a conversation in this store? In this store, um, either this or the other one over there, at least at least twice. Yeah. Uh, how, many bo- how many books do you have? Um, I've written eight eight books. See, when you lose count, then you know that you're on a roll. Now, the reason I ask is, I, I mean, I think you write beautifully. I think you have a courageous and inspiring vision of what classrooms can be. You have experience, um, but. You know, one of the things I worry about in my own work is that we think about what we would like to see. We we imagine mm-hmm. a, a world, and that's part of the work. But then we also find ourselves stuck in systems yeah. where realizing the vision you talk about becomes... So So here we are in a broken world, seeming, seemingly moving backwards in some ways. Um, what's your hope for the book? What do you... Hope the book. What what intervention are you making that you hope can um, move the move the clock forward a bit? Well, the book is the book is rooted. You know, it's 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 rooted in, and I think like like good. It, it sort of presents a philosophy of education and also some hands on practices that I've done either with my own children or with youth that I've worked in um, worked with, and it you know it's rooted in. It's rooted like like I think good philosophy is rooted in on the ground praxis, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's rooted in things that we've done 
and tried and failed and, 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 and had in conversation in dialogue with youth, with other teachers. with So it's rooted in those processes, you know. Um, and I think that, I think that, you know, what's, what's really hard about the, you know, the, it's, I always think about the reason for that we have so much of an emphasis, why do we have so much of an emphasis on, on, on these easily testable skills? And it's, it's because that's, the, that's kind of the easiest thing. And what, it's part of the reason is because that's the easiest thing to do. And when we're talking about the real, uh, the, the kind of educating that, that you and I believe in, while I don't think it's necessarily harder, it's harder to convey in a, in a, in a package. Mm. It's harder to like pass on as something that's, like, that's just easily transmitted from one person to the next because so much of the work is relational. It's about building relationships. So I don't have an easy answer, like an easy solution to how we can create a sort of uh, cookie-cutter version of schools that look like the kinds of schools that I would love for my children to go to and for the young people that I love to go to. I think what I'm, my hope is that is that we try to start to find language for educators because I think a lot of educators understand much of what's broken with the system. Absolutely. You know, like they, they know. And like I said in the, in the passage I read, they were trapped in this remote learning thing. And they knew it wasn't, it wasn't good and healthy for a lot of the students. They knew it was a hard thing to do. They didn't really have a lot of good options at that point because it was a really difficult situation. And the problems with it weren't, weren't related to their, their love for what they were doing or their, or their competence. The problems were more related to the idea that how that, that there wasn't enough room to really rethink what they were doing in a in a creative way because the system had such such rigidity to it. Um, what I'd like though is to be able to have a conversation about education that where we begin to kind of not get caught up in the same language that has been guiding us, the language of of sort of you know that dominates the conversation around test scores and, and quantifiable <laughs> easily quantified outcomes and those sorts of things. I'd like to be able to have a conversation that focuses on what actually is meaningful to the, to the development of a human being. And that's a harder conversation, but I, I'd like to have it. And, and I, think, I think you have, for many, many years, been in that conversation and in many ways providing a lot of light in that conversation. But, but you pointed out in what you read even that, that the problems predate the pandemic. Absolutely. The pandemic... Yeah made things visible yeah. that weren't visible uh, and among them i mean some good things as well as some shitty things so yeah for example yeah. i mean i mean suddenly test scores were not needed to go to college and oh my god we were told a year no. before that somehow the sky would fall if we didn't have the sats and then we didn't have the sats yeah, yeah. and that was fine yeah. you know so there were revelations on all sides but you pointed out that it predates the pandemic so and this is an ongoing thing. So it's, there's something deeper than just ha us having a good conversation or mm -hmm. all of us going out in the world and promoting a certain view of education. There are bigger forces, right, that we're up against. And, and the, the forces, I mean, there are forces that are, that are, some of the forces, like, you know, if you talk about things like, say, you know, right-wing textbooks, let's say. Some of those are, like, obvious political issues. But the, the conversation around education, it, it, it's very similar, or the kinds of things that are promoted among, say, Democrats and Republicans tend to be very similar. The, the dialogue tends to be very similar. Absolutely. Um, 
one party might be willing to spend a little more money on it. One party might be a little more, you know, progressive on certain issues. But the conversation about what constitutes an educated person tends to be very similar across the board. And I think that has something to do with something to do very deep, not just about politics, but about the core values of the civilization. And I think that if we think about, say, for example, the values, if we look at, like, say, the values of, 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 of industrial capitalism and how that, what does that look like if you take those values of, 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 of competition and individualism and, and um, uh, the kind of hierarchies that we have in society, how do those look in a classroom? And you'll get kind of a conventional American classroom. You get those same values played out in that classroom. And they're not, it's not like somebody sitting, it's not like there's teachers in America who are sitting around like, let's create a capitalist system in our classroom. They're not doing that. It's not conscious. But those values are so woven into the civilization that they're, they seem just sort of like, they're, they're, they seem intuitive, like common sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I'm glad you raised the word capitalism because I was going to and uh, <laughs> you beat me to it. But that's kind of what I'm pointing at is that every school system in every society in every age, both as a mirror and a window into a society. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, if you know yeah. what apartheid is, you can go to South Africa 25 years ago, and you can expect that the schools will look exactly as they did look. Yeah. You know, for the African kids, 55 kids in a classroom with a broken furnace and a falling down roof. For the white European kids, 12 kids in a classroom with a state-of-the-art science lab, right? So every society is a mirror. So what is what are our schools mirroring, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and how do we, I mean, I think the schools are a legitimate site of struggle, but don't we have to always have our eye on that, those larger invisible forces that are making the schools be what they are? I mean, one way of thinking about it is in an autocracy or a, an authoritarian society, you would think that whatever else they teach in the schools, they would teach obedience and conformity. Yeah. And in a free society, you would think whatever else they taught, they would teach um, initiative, courage, imagination. And so who are we? Where are we? And yeah. what can we see? about ourselves that needs kind of fundamental transformation. It's, it, it's a sort of recursive relationship, I think. What I mean is is that the society will, will, will pa as you were describing, like sort of pass on those values in, into the classroom. But then as they play out in the classroom, that's the way that they, cre they, they, they re recreate those values and encourage those values beyond the classroom. I think that what's really kind of important to think about is that a lot of those values are, are like like there's there's obvious ways you know we talk about the like the, the textbooks that come out of texas for example right and how how those textbooks are you know doing things like like trying to you know make ridiculous things like make slavery seem like it wasn't so harsh right mm -hmm. like crazy things like that but the but the values get played out in subtle ways too in the way that like relationships play out right so like if you have to raise your hand to use the bathroom and ask permission to use the toilet you've learned something from a very small age about who has control over your body right so and that's not like a lesson that's like a curricular thing that's part of the that's just part of the relationships that are cultivated in the, in the space you know exactly right so i mean I, what i'm partly saying about the link between schools and a social system is that you could look at the society and imagine what the schools would be. You could go into the schools and know what the society mm -hmm. would be. Yeah. And I think the most important thing to remember is that 
fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and medieval Saudi Arabia produce scientists, you know, scholars, artists, world-class athletes, and also produce people who were willing to look the other way when millions of people marched into the oven. So, you know, it's, you're right, it's subtle, but don't we have to have our eye on both the small and the large at the same time when we're working in the field of education? Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree. I I feel like, I feel like it's, it's, uh, uh, in this, this is where, like, like I, I actually make the point in the book that the only actual test that, that really means anything in the end is the test of what kind of world are children going out and creating? What kind of society are they, are they creating? What kind of values are they, are they, are they sharing when they go into the world? I think that too often, and I, and I really think this is a huge part of capitalism, the notion that we can, that success is something that we can think of in an, in an individual way. And I think that that is, that right there is the way that is, is one of the core values of, of, I'll say most classrooms, is that success can be an individual thing and that we can think of ourselves as actors in that space who are responsible only for ourselves and our own individual achievement and that the purpose of being there is to achieve something for ourselves. We think about no matter how successful a person is in that system, you can imagine how you could be a successful scientist, uh, artist, whatever else you said, in Nazi Germany, and be less concerned with the well-being of, of, of the community around you. Or see oneself as enmeshed in those relationships. But isn't this one of the reasons that idealistic folks, myself included, um, we have projects, we have classrooms, individual classrooms, as well as school projects and so on. And they, have, they last for a while, but they have a hard time living in a larger society yeah, yeah. That, that, is, that is based on values of competition, toxic individualism, and so on. And I agree with you. I don't think it's just a question of, of success being measured individually. I think everything becomes so individualized that, for example, to take two examples that are driving me crazy. One is the word racism means two distinct things. It means bigoted, backward, stupid, you know, people like Clive and Bundy. Um, and it means structural structures of inequality based on color and baked into law and custom. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about racism. He's a racist or he's yeah. not a racist. Yeah. But this allows every white person in America to say, well, I'm not a racist because I'm not Clive and Bundy. Right. But on the other right. hand, what are you doing to undo the structures of for example, health inequalities or mass incarceration, or if you're not working on that, then aren't you just going along as you, as most people went along in the days of slavery? Mm-hmm. I wasn't, maybe somebody could say I wasn't owning slaves, but nonetheless, yeah. the whole society was built on that. So what is, what is it even, what are you even claiming when you say, I, you know, you were part of that system, you were implicated in the system, is what I guess the way to say it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's and it becomes very it's it's a real challenge and I've experienced this challenge like on the ground doing work with you know not as a writer but as a, as an educator right. trying to think about ways to enact different different kinds of 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 learning spaces and often the hardest the hardest place to do that is in a school right you know right and and that's because a school has certain traditions and structures and as soon as you as soon as you name it a school I think. 
unconsciously, you start to do certain things. You start to sec- separate things by certain subjects that are familiar. You start to uh, uh, you start to um, pass out grades. You start to dole out punishments. You start to do things that feel like school to you. I think unconsciously, it's very easy to get caught in that. And it's also true that there are systems in place that make it very difficult to do things differently. But so sh- should we be unschoolers? Should we be de-schoolers? Is that what we should do? I think um, I think it's really hard to... Uh, I think you have two things going on. You have, um, in some ways, sort of idealistically, in the perfect world, I can imagine starting the schools over from scratch. I also am aware that some of the ideas that I that I talk about that I value are only available to very there are they happen they're actually happening but they're happening only for the privileged and spaces in which young people who are don't have those privileges are in spaces that tend to be more punitive tend to have less less of a notion of freedom all of our kind of fear of children come out more intensely when you were talking about kids who are black and brown or poor, giving people the opportunity to think and be creatively and free in those spaces becomes much harder, yeah. you know? And I think, um, I also am aware that it's really hard to to think about in the society, you know, so we have to start where we are and it's hard to think, I want, I just wonder what, you know, what a, you know, it's, I think it's, it's helpful to have people on, on all different sides of the of that in terms of like people working within the system and trying to have change and people working outside the system you know so i think it's worth having all those things well i I, you know when you say we we work where we are i think that's a really important thing for people to understand that there is no perfect place if there were a perfect place to bring about social justice or bring about the kinds of changes that you and i might agree on we'd all go there but there is no perfect place and Mm -hmm. And when I said the schools serve societies, I don't want to overstate that. Schools are also a site of con- of contestation and, and contention, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So yeah. it's where y- large numbers of young people gather. I mean, part of the reason that part of the right-wing agenda is to do away with public education is because public education is a place where the public gathers. Yeah. And, and where, where questions of, you know, what do we value, what should we value, are played out. So I think... To be a school teacher today and to be in the Chicago public schools, for example, to fight for the union, to fight for those kids, to, to bring the families in, fight for equity, those are all progressive and right things to be yeah, doing. Yeah. Um, and then I think people doing things like the Wisdom Project are also part of it. I mean, Yeah, and, you know, I think it, it reminds me of the point you made about this, uh, this institution as part of the public sphere, schools should be that too. They, and they right. are that. They can be but that. They, they right. can be that, but, but there's, there's a lot of people who are fighting against that, not just in terms of curriculum, but in terms of privatizing public Absolutely. schools. Part of the reason, part of the reason to, I think, support teachers and support public education is that that is, that is fundamental to having a, a democracy. That's where, but it, it, it requires that schools are actually genuinely public, not sort of quasi-public yeah. and privatized. And also that we understand that part of the purpose of being there, it's not just for individual achievement, it's not just to get a better test score, it's to learn how to function in democracy. Right. And that happens in a couple of different ways. It happens in learning about 
the world and about a democracy, but also happens by creating a democratic space within the classroom and having interactions that are that are more democratic in nature. And supporting kids when they take initiative to build projects mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. in their interest. I'm thinking of uh, Youth Radio, which came out of uh, yeah. Oakland and Berkeley, which was a phenomenal project of yeah. young people deciding that they wanted to interview each other about you know, what was going on in their lives. Yeah, and, they do and, great programs. And, yeah. and it became an incredible force. But I do think it's really important to 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 say that we, both not only we struggle inside and outside, but that we look for opportunities to support whatever, you know, um, nodules of struggle exist. I want to say one other thing, and then I really want to open it up. I want to say one other thing about this question of toxic individualism versus... Um, versus seeing things as social, collective, political. Um, and what I'm thinking of is, you, you've probably heard of DEI. It's an industry. Diversity, mm-hmm. equity, yeah. inclusion. Yeah. You've heard of it. Um, it's an industry. And what's interesting about it to me is that DEI is a response to a, a demand for equity, um, uh, a demand for... Um, a demand for... to challenge the kind of toxic individualism and say, we're owed reparations because affirmative action meant affirmative action for some ethnic groups to be in the fire department and some to be excluded. So I want reparations for that. No, no, let's have diversity as if that somehow answers the problem of the structures of inequality, which it firmly doesn't. But I think it's become become such a popular thing. It's in every university, it's in in my university, it's in every industry, and it uh, it really defangs what was a struggle for, you know, really reparations and repair. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think that by focusing merely on representation without any institutional or systemic sorts exactly. of changes is exactly. is, is, is it, it was a way to sort of defang that movement I think a lot exactly yeah. and that's why we have Lori Lightfoot never mind I don't want to go on. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it um, but or, or, or Eric Adams I mean really I mean they have a great backstory but um, this is not this is not the best thing for New York or Chicago so anyway we're about to have a mayoral election so aren't we excited would people please like to get into the conversation people have comments questions Things you'd like to throw out? <coughs> Questions for Theodore? I have a Here. comment. Sorry. Please. Um, I've been a teacher in uh, Oak Park Public Schools for 15 years. I have two adult children who went through the system. I'm also from Spain. I used to be a high school philosophy teacher there, and then I'm a Spanish teacher in elementary in Oak Park. So, what were you teaching in Spain? I'm sorry. Uh, history of philosophy and ethics. Damn. Now, see, why don't American high schools have history yeah, thinking, of philosophy? I'm thinking, I was thinking the same. Thing. You know? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that only speaks about my age, about all those things. But there are two things that are striking to me uh, still after almost 30 years in this country. First of all, the way the public schools are financed. I think that is key. If we're going to be financed by property taxes, you know, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. The second thing is uh, the individualism, the competition that is not just toxic, it's just like, I am amazed every single year 
by you know who reads more who gets more points doing this and <coughs> I just do not I just <laughs> you know, reach uh, you know I'm at the end of my wits with that this year there was a competition about whose door is more beautiful and spreads joy and the fifth graders eventually said enough <laughs> we don't want to vote for that we are going to comment on each one and I thought finally you know right Somebody has a sense of, you know, I don't know, a brain here. When the kids say, the fifth graders say, we don't, we have enough of this competition about absolutely everything. Um, so that's yeah, and that just echoes, I think, what we were talking about yeah. about the competition. That's a really great example. Um, uh, competition for like, yeah, the most joy. That's really interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. But I think your point about the property taxes is a great is a great point, you know, and it's an example of a thing that we do here that we've done for a long time. And to the extent that it seems normal, but you're looking at it from the outside and, and, and realize that it's an absurd way to, to finance something so important as schools. And I mean, it ensures it ensures vast inequality. Yeah. yeah and so, yeah. you know, and, and you go to some public schools in Lake Forest or Winnetka and they're palaces of learning. Yeah, and yeah. you go to other public schools in some of the south suburbs, and they yeah. they don't have anything. And and you and you say, well, this is a public school system. How is that possible? Yeah. That you know, and and you know, we we pretend that we're a meritocracy, but the reality is that you don't choose your parents, and y y you're shit out of luck if you're born somewhere and not somewhere else, yeah. or you know, your privileges and your and your disadvantages are just structured in. You were going to say yes. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, are they still teaching phonics? And if so, uh, you know, is that good or is that bad that they're not teaching it? I don't know what's going on with phonics, but I've noticed, like, some children aren't reading at the same level that I was. And I struggled with reading, but that phonics was the hardest thing for me. And I wanted to know about phonics. I had a wonderful T-shirt that said "Hooked on Phonics" and it was spelled out phonetically, um, <laughs> in un unintelligible. I don't know about theater, but I'll just say quickly that I, I've, I taught early childhood for years and years, and so I've probably taught thousands of kids to read. Or actually, to be honest, I didn't teach them to read. I provided an environment where literacy was available. We had a lot of conversation, a lot of. And frankly, I wouldn't say that I had a method. I would say I had a carpet bag with a thousand methods, mm -hmm. and each yeah. one of them came to bear. Sometimes phonics can be very, very useful, and the kind of ideological anti-phonics thing seems silly to me. On the other hand, the ideology that promotes phonics as if it's real science is equally nonsensical. I mean, we're watching a couple of our grandkids learn to read right now, and... It's just delightful uh, to watch kids make the connections and and sit on, you know, grandpa's lap and read a book and feel, you know, pick out words and so on. But there's not a, I don't, I myself don't believe that there's a method. Now there's mm -hmm. some elementary school teachers here who might differ, but I don't think there's yeah. a method. I think there's a whole cornucopia of possibilities, but you have to be, you have to create a literate environment in which... Becoming literate is like becoming um, a speaker. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I totally agree. I'm not an, an expert in ch early childhood education, but I, I completely agree. But I have I have three children, two of whom are are young and learning to read. And I, I think that it, 
exactly what you said. The only wrong thing is to be so ideological about it that you eliminate. And I've watched like one of my children learn very easily to read just because she was in 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 an environment in which there was a lot of exposure to literature and and she learned to read and loved to read and watched another child who was dyslexic have more challenges and need like a lot of a lot of repetition so it's it really varies and i think i think the thing about that is to not get too uh caught up in some sort of um uh you know, like ideological about, battle about yeah. that yeah yeah there's I, lots of other things we can be talking I mean, it's about you drew on your kids i we we have that same experience we have three kids now in their 40s but but each of them learned to read differently yeah so different One of them amazing learned to read by sounding out. The other one learned to read by chewing on whole words. Another one invented his own way of writing and wrote books and so on and eventually, but they also learned to drive differently. One of them had to have accidents first. And I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's just interesting. Cause well, I, I think that that difference though speaks to like, you know, you, we can talk about all different, all different things all different sort of subjects and ways of approaching to learning. Like, like we're all so many people are in all different ways. And I think that having a rich learning environment in which people can figure out how they best learn and we can help them with that process is, 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 is really important to learn yes. how you learn. Without a doubt. And, and for those of us who love teaching and love watching kids learn and for those of us who love particular kids, I think it's important to, to a point you made right in the beginning which is, think back 10 years and, and think of the world today and what it was 10 years ago. And in your curriculum 10 years ago, they weren't teaching you how to use a cell phone. But damn, that's all we do now. So how'd you learn that if you didn't get, if you weren't a target of instruction yeah, for cell yeah. phone use? But what we, that's what you were saying in the beginning. We're preparing kids for a world that's already gone past. Right, and right. the future is, so the question is, can we prepare kids to have <coughs> The kind of relationships, the kind of curiosity, yeah. the kind of inventive imaginations where they can make their world and change their world. And I think that's the thrust of what you've written. I think it's a hugely important point. Yes? Uh, I don't know if this is a question or a comment. It might develop into a question. Um, I work in a community college as, a, as an English, English instructor. I've been doing it for two decades. And uh, I often start, depending on the level I'm teaching, I often start the class with with the quote from um, Samuel Clemens uh, that I would never allow schooling to interfere with my education. Perfect. And then I ask students to um, evaluate that and then to come up with examples of the difference between education and schooling. Beautiful. They come up with educations of schooling that are endless, but they have a really hard time coming up with, it, with examples of education. It'll be, you know, two or three things and it'll be something like, well, going outside and seeing that it's raining, you realize that it's raining that day. And I say, okay, great, great. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's exactly it. So let's take that further. Let's take that further. Then HLC comes in. Now, just for the for the sake of telling people what this is, HLC is the body that accredits whether or not we are we are worthy of accreditation. And what are they interested in? They are interested in a number that represents that we have taught what we said we've been trying to think, exactly. trying trying to teach, but we can't show them how we have taught someone to be curious, exactly. because you can't fucking quantify. It. Exactly. And everybody in the room knows it. Exactly. <laughs> Including these PhDs who come in and claim that they're on these boards and this and that. So at some point, educators themselves 
you know, really have to just kind of look around and say, look, if we know these things as educators and as people who end up in administration and everything else, honestly, what are we trying to do? These numbers that we throw around, I mean, at this point, we've thrown out the SAT, or you know, many colleges have. Um, I don't know if it's ever going to come back, if they find that there's some problem there, this and that. But trying to quantify how it is that somebody is teaching, and to use that as the end-all, be-all that, that, that explains what is actually going on, simply, simply ruins the capacity yeah. for someone to do yeah. the thing that we're trying to do, which is to teach curiosity. Yeah. You know, I, I, two things come to mind quickly for me. One is, have you ever heard of Goodhart's Law in economics? I have not. You, you'll like it. You'll use it with your colleagues. Goodhart's Law says, paradoxically, that a, um, a, uh, metric, uh, a metric for success only works if you don't use it as a metric for success. Mm -hmm. right, right. You know, that, that uh, as soon as you say, I'm going to have a good high school and the proof is going to be all the kids go to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can meet that standard, but you can meet it by calling whatever you want to a college, yeah. and kids could go to the University of Illinois and flunk out in a year, or mm -hmm. kids could go to Rose's Beauty School, and that counts. Um, the school could be absolute shit, but 100% of the yeah. kids could go to college. Yeah. Um, yeah. The same is true of, you know, yeah. we're going to have a safe city by, you know, issuing X number of tickets, mm -hmm. and it, you can issue those tickets, but... So a performance metric only works as a performance metric if you don't use it as a performance metric. And I was also tickled and encouraged two days ago to see in the New York Times that U.S. News and World Report, with a lot of pushback, gave up on ranking law schools. And, and you know, we all knew that that was fraudulent. U.S. News and World Report is just fraudulent. Fifty percent of the ranking of law schools were reputation. So Harvard, Yale, and Stanford were always the top three. I mean, what the hell? My favorite study in this regard was two, two law professors did a survey of 500 law professors and they asked them to rank a list of 10 law schools from top to bottom. And, all, and the results were Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and down at the bottom, University of North Carolina. In the middle was Penn State. Penn State doesn't have a law school, but it didn't seem to matter because, you know... Um, it's kind of a middle school, right? So, anyway. yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think I, I think the the problem the problem with those kinds of well, first of all, those assessments exist for a couple of reasons. They exist because it's just it's just easy, right? Um, you know, it's like it's like I like the the, the story of Mullah Nasruddin looking for his key under the lamppost. Yeah, and it's like yeah. you know why can't you find your you know you keep looking 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 and it's, and, and and they say well, why are you, are you sure your key's under the lamppost? He says no, of course it's not. It's in the dark alley over there, right? <laughs> but the lights here. But the lights right? here, right. right? That's exactly why we right. focus on testing. Right. And and the the problem though, I think to what Bill was speaking, it's not just it's not just that the tests aren't that useful or, or those those metrics aren't that useful. They do show something. The problem is. When when you make it the purpose of education, you've completely corrupted the whole process. You've turned it into that. That becomes the reason you're there. And you've eliminated the whole range of other things that are so important, right? You've eliminated all of the, the whole the whole purpose of being there at the expense of this thing. And I think the, the other reason that those tests exist, though, is, is a little more subtle. And I think deeper than that, though, it's that I do think that we have a, a, a like a civilizational cultural bias toward that which is quantifiable. And I think that 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 way of thinking about value as conflated with with kind of a, a quantifiable number is 
is something that it's it's the reason that we have a competition about the prettiest door, right? Mm-hmm. It's the reason we try to quantify something like joy, and we can't really do it. And th- that value, that value, which I think is woven into capitalism and this kind of individualist competition, that is that's that's an example of how it gets expressed in a, in the education system. You know, but people like us tend to say the st- the standard SAT doesn't tell us much. And you pointed out it tells us some things. But the big thing it tells us is that we are sorting ourselves between winners and losers. And mm-hmm. the winners, you know, do well on the SATs. And then they own their success. They they think they've earned their success. And the losers feel that they've earned their loser status. And it's fraudulent, but we have to expose it for what it is. because, And it does suit a certain kind of economic system, a certain kind of racial capitalism, but it doesn't suit humanity in the long run and even in the short run. There was another person um, over here and then... I just was wondering, um, I haven't read your book yet, but the whole idea of like the mental health and the isolation, and I think you spoke to the fact that a lot of our problems were pre-COVID and then COVID just really brought it out and made us realize. Um, can you speak to what you know, you write about or think about with that. And I, I mean, that just is what stood out so much about my kids and my kids have all the, you know, luxuries given to privileged children. And, um, you know, and I wonder, you know, I mean, if my children, you know, who have a, you know, all this, you know, I think like, God, if they're screwed, yeah. what, what, what yeah. hope does the rest of, humanity have yeah i mean i thank you for that i that i i use the example like of you know of the kind of like you know the the remote learning and screen time and the social isolation as a way to you know talk about it um i think you know more broadly i would say that thinking about what it means to be like like thinking about what what it means to be a human being and how we might educate a human being in, in the fullest sense and more holistic sense involves not just kind of not just not just one's intellect but also your 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 interior life your your emotional life and how we can be healthier and happier uh, happier human beings in in that sense right so I would say that that honoring that a person has a rich inner life that can be that it, that has to do with your emotions and all of those kinds of other things that are not related to academic traditional academic skills is really, really important. Um, and in a lot of, you know, a lot of settings that I've taught, the challenges that the students face were far less academic than they were emotional or social or those kinds of things. So I think, like, you know, integrating those things into anyone's learning process, that, those, those, those things are so important for all of us. I mean, I think that understanding that, 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 our, that our emotional lives are fundamental to who we are as human beings, and so rather than pretending... You know, I always I always had the experience of being undergraduate at the, at the University of Chicago, and I, I remember, and you'll relate to this because we were classmates there, sitting in a seminar, and I, I remember having a moment where I felt like the whole process was a thing where we'd have an emotion, everyone in the room was having an emotional reaction to something that was being discussed, but we had to go through this internal process of, 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 of translating that emotional response into something that was intellectual. Oh, you from which we were, Chicago. From which we were detached, yeah, right? right? You know, and that's like a super obvious example, but it's generally that way in, all, in, in, yeah. in education across the board, you know what I mean? Um, how do we pretend that we're not feeling? Yeah. 
Exactly. You know, which doesn't doesn't help any, anyone, I think. No, but that's true. I mean, you, you, you kind of, uh, you know, I, when I teach doctoral students now, I teach many places, but one place they teach is doctoral students at DePaul. And I always feel like they have the feeling that they have to lose. There are places in their life where they're fun, free, sexy, interesting, mm-hmm. opinionated, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but not here, for God's sake. This yeah. is a graduate seminar. <laughs> um, tamp it all down. Brent. Um, Dr. Harris, thank you so much. Uh, you're such a gift. Um, and thank you, sir, for your uh, book, because I think it's really important. I was thinking about the term reimagining, and this is often <clears throat> what I'm always talking about, reimagining, reimagining the educational system and things like that. But unfortunately, I have worked in schools that are just, they say that they're equity-based, right? They say that they're so committed to social justice and uh, re- they don't even use the word reimagining. Let me take that back. It's like re- uh, thinking about conversations around social justice and um, things like that. But the caveat is they're consistently, they're, all of their uh, disciplinary pos- po- uh, uh, policies are still rooted in punity. Yeah. Um, they're still doing things like hiring uh, white administrators and black uh, uh black uh, set, school settings, which is not necessarily a bad thing when you think about having intentional conversations, if they're, not, if they're willing to have intentional conversations. So they're saying that they are doing the work, but they're not, but you, and you sit back, you're like, are you really doing the work though? Are you really committed to abolition? No, you're really not. So my question is like, how do you then hold these people accountable? For their kind of, and similar to what your what your conversation was about slavery, it's like, well, I didn't really own slaves, yeah. Um, but you're still your silence is telling too, though. Absolutely. Um, so then, how are we calling those people out? One of the things that I've been investigating is like professional development, the way that professional development shows up, and how you're teaching teachers how to call out this bullshit, or how you're te- are you're how you're making sure that the conversation is rooted in anti-racism and things like that. But when you have teachers that say, well, you know, I don't really need this because I'm not really a part of that, how do you outwardly call them out? With the caveat also being that you're still getting pushback from some of your staff members who are saying, oh, well, you're too controversial or you're being too racial uh, and things like that. So. That's wow. been a struggle for for mm-hmm. me, but then also putting that right abolition, anti-racism pr- uh, framework in our professional development has been an issue because you have people making all sorts of money with all these different degrees saying, we're doing the work, but then you're sitting there like, no, you're fucking out, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, you still see the harm. The, the proof is in the harm that these young people face. I, I, thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I think that's like a, and I, I talk about it in, in the book about the, the idea of of teaching social justice kind of in a superficial way without having, creating a just school and a just classroom. And I think that's, that is part of, that is a huge problem of, of, of sort of paying lip service to social justice issues or talking about them but not having, not cultivating relationships in the school. You, you know, you talk about everything from hiring, but also I think, I think like I've seen this too, where you have uh, a school that is 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 kind of superficially rooted in the values of social justice, but you see these 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 punitive ways of dealing with discipline in the school that ref- don't reflect those values at all. 
And that, I, I would argue, is, is, is a more profound lesson than kind of the, the, the other conversation, the superficial conversation. The, the most profound lesson you can teach is kind of like how you deal with conflict in the space among, among youth or adults or whoever. Um, I don't know. Do you have thoughts about how to navigate the, the, well, the, you know, the for me, politics of the schools? As, well, as, it's complicated, as hard. And, and, yeah. and you can't do it alone. So the one good thing that I found when I was teaching in schools was that you have two natural allies. One is the students who know if you're on their side, and the other is the parents. And the parents are often dismissed, but actually parents and the community yeah, are actually potentially yeah. your best allies. And I'm thinking about the brother from the community college i'm thinking about your question at the beginning and how you get folks thinking about education versus schooling i think that for me one of the great models of successful education the way that theodore talks about it is the mississippi freedom schools which was part of a social movement it wasn't just something that existed over here as an alternative school it was part of a social movement and the and the Social movement was the civil rights movement in the South, uh, you know, 60 years ago. But the pedagogy was a pedagogy of questioning and dialogue. So always they were asking questions, who are we? What, why are we here? What are we trying to accomplish? And those kinds of questions in a normal high school are great, great ways to get kids thinking. What should we do about it? Yeah. Who benefits? Who wrote this book? And who benefits from it? And then you begin to say... Well, let's do something. And kids, especially teenagers, are really in a place where they want to do something. In fact, even as an early childhood teacher, I was an early childhood teacher in New York at the time when they call, they closed Sydenham Hospital in Harlem. And one of our mothers was a nurse there, and she was suddenly unemployed. And she came and talked to our kids about what was happening. And the kids said, well, let's go help the ministers who were sitting in over there. So they were on a hunger strike. So we went over to help the ministers. Well, here was a group of, you know, little kids basically seeing the, the value of social action. In fact, one of the kids said, they were on hunger strike and said, let's bake a cookies for them. Uh, yeah, well, that's a, the impulse is great, but they're on a hunger strike, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, he meant well. Um, but, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, it seems to me, the idea of a pedagogy of questions, a pedagogy of engagement, of relationship yeah. building, and then one that sees itself tied to a community, not separate from or above or independent of, but in the middle of. Yeah, I, I think that good pedagogy and curriculum are, are, are driven by the sort of playfulness and, and interactivity of, of, of the people within the school and also the community itself. So like it's not something that's fixed or set. It's something that, 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 that can evolve. And I, and I would say that what, what I like about the example of the, of the freedom schools that you gave is that it's, it's, all, it's driven by real challenges and problems Absolutely. in the world and in the community, right? So it's not, it's the question it asks is how can we make a better world, not how can we get a better score or how can we individually be more successful? Absolutely. You know? So it's asking a different kind of question. There's a lot and, you can read now about the freedom schools and Charles Payne has a wonderful book called Teach Freedom, which is a collection about the freedom schools. But I'm thinking, again, I'm thinking about your community college example because the freedom schools begin with three basic questions. Why are we here? What do we hope to accomplish? What do we have that we want to keep? And what is the majority culture that we want access to? What a great, yeah. I mean, there's no yeah. right answer. That's a conversation that leads to deep thinking. It's a whole, a whole 
that, that's a whole curriculum. That's a whole curriculum, that's curriculum that's whole right curriculum. there. Yeah. Exactly. And the Freedom School curriculum is begins there, and it just keeps going. Yeah. Who speaks this way? Who speaks that way? Why? Why does one have value and the other doesn't? And so on. I see somebody moving on this way. What? <laughs> what do we have? Okay, we have five minutes. Others, yes. Are we as smart as our ancestors, or are we systematically being dumbed down here in America? Systematically dumbed down. <laughs> Short answer. No, you think about it. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, a lot of there's a lot of discussions today about the ways in which, uh, you know, we're committing suicide as a as a as a human race. And actually, indigenous and ancient ways of knowing how to deal with the forest or the ocean are actually have been brushed aside. My favorite example recently is the Cascadian subduction, which is a giant earthquake about to happen in the Pacific Ocean. The last time it happened was 1800, and it happened in the Northeast, and it was devastating. Devastating for the Northeast, devastating for Japan. But Lewis and Clark arrived in 1815. And they forgot to ask anybody what happened here recently because they knew, because they were white discoverers rather than, why am I going to ask these dumb people, right? No, I think, I don't want to say we're being systematically dumbed down, but I do think you read Elizabeth Colbert or you read some of the people who are writing about, you know, env radical environmental stuff, you realize that we are in deep, deep trouble. And the idea that the ocean is infinite or that we can infinitely tear things down and go on we all know in this room that that's not true. And we have to, it's urgent, it's an emergency. So I think we're in a five alarm fire and we had better wake up. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I'd say that, that we, uh, the, the issue I think, what makes us feel dumber is, is a narrow, it's, it's a narrowing of possibilities, a narrowing of, 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 of worldviews, of languages, of ways of seeing the world. So when you're, when you're, when you, when you have such a huge problem as say uh, uh, climate change or something like that, the way that you might respond to it, if you only have, if you only have access to this narrow range of, of a narrow way of thinking about the world and who we are in the world. It's, it's difficult to respond in any kind of creative or imaginative way. That's what I thought. And you, can't, you have to respond collectively, but I don't want to just be a bummer. So I want to say there's a rhythm to how we ought to be responding as citizens, as residents, as activists, as educators. And that is, it's a simple rhythm to say, excruciatingly difficult to live. But the rhythm is we have to open our eyes and pay attention. Not once, but all the time. And we have to learn new things every day. We have to open our eyes, pay attention. Then we have to be astonished. Astonished at both the beauty, the ecstasy, and the joy all around, and also the unnecessary suffering and devastation that we visit upon one another. Then we have to act. You have to do something. And then you have to rethink. You have to doubt. And if you keep doing that, open your eyes, pay attention, be astonished, act, doubt, repeat. That, it seems to me, is the rhythm of being a, a, a person who is being responsible, you know, and, and that to me is what a good citizen. Uh, our civilization is fully committed to not paying attention. Exactly. That's like that, 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 if, if we were good at anything, it's that. There are a couple, of, a, yeah. are a couple of terrific <laughs> examples of this in literature. My favorite is Jose Saramago, the Portuguese Nobel laureate, 
his book Blind- Blindness, Blindness yeah. is just extraordinary. It's a huge metaphor of how we close our eyes intentionally to the world that's going off the cliff. And that is immoral and, and ridiculous. And the other is White Noise, which just came out as a movie. I'm so excited. I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a modern predicament. Blindness. Yeah. Intentional, willful, turning the other way. I often think of my mother, who was my beloved mother who passed away years ago. But I was taking care of her one year when she had broken her ankle. This is 30 years ago. And she said, Bill, what's this thing I've heard about called global warming? I didn't want to scare the shit out of her. So I simply said, you know... You know, it's getting warmer. And she said, uh, she said, she looked at me coldly and she said, I'm sorry I asked. Because that's the problem. If you ask, you might hear. And if you hear, you might feel compelled to do something. And I think we should all feel compelled. We, all, we should all feel urgent about it. Two of our kids live in the Bay Area. They've got the, what's, it, what's it called, an atmospheric river coming at them. Yeah. Just the term freaks me out. Um, you know, we have to pay attention and we have to get busy. It, it's also... It's also a far to be a little more positive. It's a far more. Positive. It's a far more joyful way to live your life. There's if you're no paying attention, question. right? There, that's the other part of it, right? That's so it's it's it's, it's 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 not paying attention may avoid a certain amount of of, of stress, but it's not the pathway to a no, joyful life. No, and actually, joy there is joy in resistance. There's joy in linking arms with other people. And taking a risk, um, because you know it's worthwhile. Okay, she's signaling at us that we have to end, so I'm going to say one last thing, which is, I'm going to repeat what I said in the beginning. Please buy a book. This is a book worth your time, worth your energy, worth your couple of dollars. But buy a book also to support this invaluable, very important, unique institution, 57th Street Books, Seminary Co-op. Thank you, Theodore. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generous and provocative podcast, Ergo, to my co-conspirators, Light Eilie, Roxana Espos, and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a wide-open territory to invent and reinvent. With joy in my heart, and freedom on my mind. Until next time.